Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. Listeners of this podcast appreciate that we feature interviews with senior leaders of Allied Forces. And that's because we believe in presenting experiences and perspectives direct from warfighters. And that's what makes this podcast stand out from others. Today's episode is no exception, as we are proud to welcome as our guest, Commodore David Mazur, the commander of Canada's Pacific Fleet. Commodore Mazur is responsible for the combat readiness of the Pacific Fleet, and he has over 10 deployers and numerous auxiliary support vessels under his command. For this episode, we were on board His Majesty's Canadian ship Winnipeg, a Halifax-class surface combatant, while underway in the Eastern Pacific as the command ship for Exercise Trident Fury, which is the Pacific Fleet's premier combined and joint exercise. Commodore Mazur was on board HMCS Winnipeg as the task group commander during Exercise Trident Fury. The exercise saw six Canadian Navy ships participating alongside U.S. assets, NATO partners, and some ships of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. A key participant in the exercise was the combat support ship Asterisk, a platform owned and operated by Federal Fleet Services and is leased to the Royal Canadian Navy to provide multi-mission support, primarily with its ability to provide replenishment at sea. To put it simply, the Asterisk enables Canadian and Allied combatant ships to stay at sea for longer. Asterisk joined into Exercise Trident Fury while it was already underway, and that's because the ship arrived on schedule into the Eastern Pacific after circumnavigating the world while supporting deployed operations of the Royal Canadian Navy. Exercises like Trident Fury are critical to maintaining the operational readiness of the Canadian Armed Forces and Allies as it presents demanding maritime conditions in a simulated hostile environment which is shaped by escalating tensions. Over 1,000 military personnel took part across all units and platforms, including Royal Canadian Navy ships, numerous Royal Canadian Air Force aircraft, Canadian Army personnel, and units from the United States, NATO partners, and Japan. Exercise Trident Fury 2023 had a number of other exercises within its overarching umbrella, including Exercise Unified Vision, which is the premier NATO event for joint intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance activities. Exercise Vital Archer, which is a bilateral exercise focused on counterterrorism and counter weapons of mass destruction, was also incorporated under the umbrella of Trident Fury. One of Trident Fury's primary objectives was the pre-deployment training for HMCS Ottawa and HMCS Vancouver's deployment to the Indo-Pacific region. Known as Intermediate Multi-Ship Readiness Training, or IMSRT for short, the training involved a full spectrum of sea and air tactical warfare training, including live fire exercises, seamanship, maritime interdiction operations, anti-submarine warfare, surface warfare, air defense, mine countermeasures, and small boat defense. The exercise also served as an opportunity to experiment with ship crewing models for the Royal Canadian Navy, and that's to facilitate the training backlog for sailors in the wake of the training slowdown which occurred during the pandemic. 
Our conversation focused a lot on this because, as the Commodore said, it's all about saving the Navy. I thought it was a really interesting approach, and you'll hear all about it directly from the Commodore. So, without further ado, let's cue the music as we welcome Commodore David Mazur to Go Bold. talk about Trident Fury. Like, let's talk about the objectives and what actually happened, and then kind of segue over to what actually did happen and how your views of the exercise have turned out. We've just started coming in. Um, the whole goal of Trident Fury was to bring together a bunch of operators from different ships at different readiness levels and actually to bump them up to the next readiness level. And there was probably around 10 or 15 individual objectives. And so our MCDBs, Edmonton, uh, Yellowknife and uh, Nanaimo are out here with Enwell 4 students, uh, and that is Naval Warfare Officer students. So they're practicing navigation, they're practicing basic operations and maneuvers. And, and so we use them in certain ways and then allow them to train students at the same time. And uh, that's why tonight they're going to do man overboard drills. Although it doesn't fit our scenario, we're going to put them behind the force and they can do what they want back there. Um, we have the primary thing for the whole exercise was to train HMCS Ottawa and HMCS Vancouver and to raise their readiness level to a high readiness to go to the Indo-Pacific region for uh, an extended deployment. And so that was the goal, which brought sea training east and west together to train those two ships. And we brought other things, other exercises and other capabilities because we're always trying to bring new challenging scenarios to those teams. Uh, and then at the same time, HMCS Winnipeg is now trialing a new crewing concept. And uh, they are my flagship at the same time because the other two ships are busy. Uh, and so I'm using them while they're training a bunch of brand new sailors. So there's a whole bunch of people bringing up their readiness level all at the same time and getting experience. And in and amongst this, because there's so many other asks for support or things going on, we sort of pulled all the ships together, made one overarching exercise called Trident Fury, which we've done before and used a similar scenario to this, to this before. But we supported uh, uh, an exercise with special forces uh, we supported uh, training JAMXs with uh, U.S. Navy Growlers. We worked with P-8s. Um, we worked with a NATO group that was looking at how to use UASs and communicate that information back. We worked with A-10s that learned how to strike in a maritime environment. Uh, we had F-18s here doing a Fox Frenzy, which is uh, uh, many of the pilots have never fired a live missile, and so they're using old missiles, and we provided the targets. And so that just that whole coordination between Navy, Air Force, flight safety, building a range, live weapons firing, relearning how to carry vindicators and use those and, and the flight safety involved in that. Um, all that overarching together was a challenge for my staff, so I trained my staff to a higher level. So that's that was the goal, is to raise everyone's readiness level, really, using a unique exercise and bringing as much as we could together because that makes it more complex and more difficult to do. And do you feel like you've achieved those goals? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mentioned a story to you on the bridge wing uh, or sorry, on the bridge the other night about someone learning new nautical terms. They've never heard it. And it's something I've said for 33 years. And I don't even think about it. I said, you know, I, I is just something you say in the Navy. And he, he said it for the first, he was told, no, this is how you respond. And he thought it was so cool. And, and so right from that very first time ever going to see sailor all the way up to the three brand new captains that have never worked in a complex exercise like this before. And so their personal uh, experience and readiness level to be able to do, uh, we're in Winnipeg, ready duty ship type functions, more uh, domestic and, and uh, continental defense type stuff. Uh, with the other ones deploying into a, a 
fairly tense part of the world, and so they were doing high-end combat. Right now, if you went over, they have locked shafts. They have battle damage all over the place. Their their uh, their galley is destroyed and all kinds of stuff. And, and so that experience that's been gained, the ability to work with high-end jamming aircraft, uh, F-18s, missile firings, uh, it has built that level. So I'm really, really happy with what we've achieved. Excellent. And so HMCS Ottawa, HMCS Vancouver, at what point will they be declared high readiness and ready to deploy? They're, they're both on different paths where Ottawa has a more traditional path because they just came out of, I say just, but um, a year and a bit ago, they came out of a dry dock and bit by bit, we put weapon systems and sensors back on to make them safe at sea. Uh, less on the weapon, more on basic nav radars and radios. Um, and then they go to sea and do trials and they, they build month after month, a month at sea, a month or two alongside putting the next layer on. And so they're in a more classic role. And they had a break before this exercise, and they actually went to a simulator uh, with their ops team, and they practiced up to World War III type scenarios, you know, very high-end combat, intense situations that you just can't do at sea because our systems don't allow that. They do when you're in a real scenario and you're firing real missiles, um, but you can only simulate so much using our real combat system before you're pushing safety limits. So we do that ashore. So Ottawa's already done that, and at the end of this workups, once once I get the the, the uh, recommendation from Sea Training that they achieved all objectives, uh, then we can declare them high readiness, and I'll declare that, and I'll send it out to our readiness organization that'll that'll change their status. HMCS Vancouver is on a more traditional path; it was a very more compressed schedule, and so now that they finished the workups, the ship itself, the whole company on damage control on. Uh, dealing with complex issues and, and uh, planning operations and responding to damage controls and stuff like that. Uh, they've achieved what's required as a whole of ship. All the sub-teams have achieved what they need. The last one really outstanding is their ops team, and so they will be going out to do this, what's called ops team training level two. And so then they'll be declared high readiness right after this. Okay, excellent. And you mentioned that it's an extended deployment, so will this be longer than a typical deployment for a frigate? No, it would be a, a typical deployment. Then some, it'll it'll go to Christmas from okay. uh, August till Christmas. Okay. I say extended because sometimes you're going down to San Diego for training or Hawaiian training and back, and you're gone for six weeks, and that's people will still call that a short deployment or an extended deployment. So right. it it is uh, an operational force employment deployment right. uh, to the Indo Pacific. So they'll be gone for about five months. Okay. Um, do you want to expand a little bit more on this sea training aspect of HMCS Winnipeg? I think just to kind of add a little bit more flavor to kind of what exactly is being exercised here. Yeah, absolutely. So we have this unique situation where we have uh, all through COVID, people were still enrolling in the armed forces or they might have been in a university uh, and or marine systems engineering extended program or military college. And so even though COVID hit, a lot of students went and learned online through their education organization. And at the end of it, they were already in the armed forces. They, they came to the Navy. Um, the Navy training system was partially shut down, if not fully shut down, except for in critical areas. Uh, and therefore, we weren't able to take large numbers of people. And not that the numbers were large, but cumulative over sort of two, two and a half years until our training system got up and running. So we have uh, a bulk of people um, I would say uh, 250 to 350, depending on the day and when courses start and end, that are very, very junior, uh, that have completed their sort of Navy Basic 101 called NATP, um, except for we don't have the capacity to put 300 people on a ship to give them their first three, six, nine months of trades training at sea. So they may have finished a shore course and they're all waiting to get on a ship. 
And so what we've done is we've extended uh, Winnipeg's schedule a bit beyond uh, there was space to do so, a bit beyond where, where she would have started getting ready for a docking work period. Um, we used the seal of Winnipeg to develop what they thought was the bare minimum crewing model to be safe, to force generate, and to be able to do ready duty ship. And, and there's certain requirements to do search and rescue, uh, support like a vessel in distress, uh, basic armaments, but it's not missiles, torpedoes, it's not high in combat. And so the ship identified the crew that they thought they would need. It's somewhere around 150. Um, the ship has about 250 bunks. And um, we then reviewed it at our fleet staff headquarters. We then sent it to CC training to review it uh, from uh, their expertise level of the watch and station bill. This was taken from initial uh, theoretical work that was done by an organization called NFR. And so we thought, okay, we think we have a plan. And that gives us about 100 bunks to play with. Um, we realized that bringing 100 brand new sailors on board a ship that had never been on a ship, they need guidance. And so we told the ship to uh, build in a training department because ships don't normally have a training, exclusively a training department. So they built a department of around 5 to 10 people, which gives us about 90 bunks that we can put in any sailor we want. And some sailors just need their first month at sea to see if they get seasick, to learn their way around a ship, to feel comfortable. Some of them might have three or four years in, but they're at the next level of training, and there may only, on an average frigate, may only be two bunks assigned for that level of training, but we have 10 people. And so we're able to put those people on board Winnipeg, and then they just drill and drill and drill. Um, and so it allows us to focus on force generation of our individual skills, our, our junior personnel, and that's, that's what Winnipeg's overarching mission is until Christmas, is to be an at-sea classroom, giving the sailors, whether they need their very first experience at sea, whether they're a marine technician, whether a communication specialist, whether they're an ops person, a cook doesn't really matter if they need experience at sea. Uh, it's being prioritized by an organization ashore and they're rotating through the ship. Hey folks, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing today speaks about developing high-end capabilities. Such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best prepared that they can be. Cubic is a market leader in training operators to be proficient in the application of their platforms for their warfighting mission. From well-integrated instrumentation systems, to game-based learning, to multi-domain blended LVC training environments, Cubic remains the United States allied and coalition partner of choice to deliver truth in training. Cubic's Total Learning Platform is a maritime game-based learning platform that has proven to reduce the time-to-train watch standards on littoral combat ship combatants by 90%. And Cubic's blended LVC open standards-based solution enables live and virtual ships and aircraft to train together in a common, secure, synthetic environment. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. We are proud to have Cubic Defense as a teammate for this podcast, and we thank them for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guest today. To learn more about Cubic Defense, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, back to our chat. And so, how have you seen this model working in reality? Yeah, the concept, and now you've been aboard Winnipeg, you've been watching what's been happening. Um, 
how do you see this this happening, and do you see this extending further beyond Winnipeg once this ship goes into its refit? I think we don't have a choice but extending it. Uh, we, we had a process to make this safe to do, uh, so I'm not ready to say it's a success or a failure yet. It might need to be adjusted, but I don't think we have a choice but to do something along these lines. We'll just see what works best. Ships can be asked to do a lot of complex things, and you have to make sure you have the right people in the right spot. And we have to assume that the sailors that are on board here for training know nothing. So the ship has to be able to respond to a grounding, uh, a major engineering casualty, uh, a flood, a fire, embarking a helicopter or helicopter crash type thing, all on its own, assuming that those 100 sailors don't exist because they actually may be a detriment to the ship because they don't know the bow from the stern, some of them, you know, so. Um, so we normally bring, uh, our plan was to bring sea training on board before we got here, and the ship was supposed to have a week at sea um, because of the public service strike. Uh, their maintenance got around a week and a half behind, and we lost that week at sea with sea training. So sea training did training alongside to test what we call their watch at station build. Um, they, they gave a, a tentative thumbs up, and so we took them to sea. So we've seen them real raw. Um, they haven't had the benefit of sea training to sort of check and uh, re-baseline. And the core crew of Winnipeg, a significant number of them are new in their positions as well. So the captain, the XO, there's an acting coxswain right now. And a lot of the hods and chods were swapped out because the ship had just deployed. Right. So we took a lot of those experienced people to make space, move them ashore into our training systems to be teachers and instructors and support other ships and, and ships that are ramping up in their cycle. Um, and then we put new people that are qualified but maybe don't have a lot of experience in their new jobs. And then we put all these trainings on top. So you can see how you can easily make a Swiss cheese model that is unsafe. And it, which is the reason why we did check after check and we, we did alongside training. Um, during this exercise, the ship uh, was participating in the exercise. It was really central to the control ship for the missile X. It carried the targets. Uh, we I forgot to mention we worked with the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. It was my flagship. So the combat nature of the exercise and dealing with the simulated missile strikes and, and the submarines, and the ship uh, participated somewhat in that, but not fully because that's not their role right now. Um, I guess it was really interesting every day. I, I had a smile on my face by seeing the Navy from someone with 34 years in ish, uh, and seeing the Navy through the eyes of someone brand new for the first time. Um, and it didn't matter whether I was hearing a story of one of my staff who was like me quite a bit of sea time and, and my F3, she's, uh, she's got a lot of sea time as well. And, and she'd say, sorry, sir, I'm like two minutes late. And I was just helping a sailor find their way around. And she was in the aft end of the ship in, in our work office. And she came out and found a sailor looking at the book and looking around like, where am I? You know, and so she said, are you lost a little bit? And, yeah. And, and they thought they're in the front of the ship up in the bow. And I'm supposed to be up in, you know, it's called the forward section base. And she goes, yeah, you're at the wrong end of the ship. So look at the numbers, how they count down. Remember your training. The numbers are here on each of the doors in the bulkhead. So you can tell what deck you're on. And now go around 10 spaces forward and then go up a ladder. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so you're just looking and laughing and uh, you see people in the ops room seeing stuff for the first time uh, when we launched Vindicators, when we did our PAC for a gun. So I've, I've seen hundreds of gun shoots, you know, and but then to see like 20 people piled in the back of the bridge, like looking at the window, watching it for the first time. So I really enjoyed that aspect of seeing that. But then you also have to remember there's a significant responsibility in keeping people safe. Right. Because they'll open the bridge door and they'll go out and they'll, they'll cause themselves hearing damage if they're not told, hey, headphones on, keep the doors closed and stuff. Yeah. And so that, that is the responsibility of the ship, is to make sure they set up a safe training environment and then give people that basic experience so they can be safe on other ships. Is it um, 
I was going to say, is it an undue burden upon the ship? But really, like, I mean, they're given an objective, and they've got to carry it out. I guess that's what the job of the CEO here is to do, and, and you guys to kind of keep it all safe. Seems to be working. Yeah, it's, is it a burden? I think uh, being a captain at sea is a burden on any ship and whatever you're doing, and, and uh, life's not easy at sea, but you're right, it's the mission. We've removed the requirement to be combat ready. They have to be ready, duty ship ready, which requires some operational skills, including using some force if you ever had to coerce or delay someone while the RCMP or another agency got out there, if it was ever called to. Um, But like I said, we're not carrying the missiles. We're not carrying a lot of things uh, intentionally. And we've removed that. But then you're right. We've we've intentionally drawn down the skill level of the team to make bunks. We only have so many bunks on a ship to give that space to allow those brand new people time to get their experience. And so that's the captain's challenge in his command of the ship. It's not going to be a deployment. And I actually talked to him over a year ago uh, when we had this idea. It, it's taken that long because the ship was set to deploy. Uh, and I remember calling him in Ottawa and saying, listen, I want to select you and give you this opportunity. It's not a standard. You're not going to deploy to the Indo-Pacific. It's not about guns and missiles, this one. It's about, you know, referencing saving the Navy with a group of trainees that we have to get to the next level into the training system, and hopefully the next group come. So when when we talk about NEP, Naval Experience Program, when we talk about reconstitution and a big push on recruiting, we are hoping that those 300 people never come into the Navy and have to wait again, but that we get 50 a month coming through the system regularly all the time to, to recover our numbers. And we will need training ships like this to be able to do that. And so... That's for HMCS Winnipeg. My understanding is that there's uh, also something happening on HMCS Vancouver of a training aspect outside of their IMSRT, I think. There is. There's actually uh, three things occurring. Um, We determined that we have to have massive amounts of bunks uh, and that if if uh, if we used Winnipeg just in our cycle at the end of the cycle before dry dock to do this uh, trial, this experiment, uh, it was the right ship to do it, and so uh, I, I took that on. Fleet Pack took that on. We also had a two-ship deployment model going to the Indo-Pacific, and so that's Ottawa and Vancouver. Um, we have enough sailors that we could have put all their, you know, call it your aces and your places. But we also have mid-level combat operators um, and people that need that experience deployed overseas. They may have filled a, a mid-level rank job, and they just went on a six- or nine-month course, and they're ready for the next step up. Um, this is not the ship to do that in because they need the combat experience, they need the sonar experience, they need the fire control radar experience. Uh, And so what we've done is because um, Ottawa is going to be crewed, trained, fitted out, equipped, maintained, that if anything happens in Indo-Pacific, they're ready on a moment's notice to turn towards. Um, Vancouver is going to be all of that, except the crewing we've drawn down We've taken some of the training billets that we would normally assign to very specific trades and spots, and we've made them unassigned to a trade or a rank. So they are neutral now. We can put anyone in there that we need to. And then at the same time, we took a few positions where we said, we don't need that level of resilience and immediacy, um, and we can turn those into training bunks. And so they, they are trialing a crewing model, which leaves, once they're fitted with their helicopter, as they are and, and all this, that will have about 40 bunks that will fulfill a job that the ship requires. They're all trained firefighters. They're all trained operators. They're all trained flood control specialists. They know the ship, port bow. We're not putting brand new people or, or maybe one or two, but 
it's not the people that don't know the ship. It's people that have some experience and are, are going for the next level. But we're putting them on board because we can afford to do that. The ship will be able to defend itself in a second. And with the push button uh, going to action stations, there's about a six-minute period that, it, that uh, it takes us to get to that higher, higher level. Um, and so they can do immediate defense maneuvers and response and then push up a button. They're six minutes later, they're fully gunned and ready to go. So we're not really drawn down the capability. We're just looking at the crewing model a little bit different. And that'll allow us on a five-month deployment to maybe rotate one or two or three groups through that ship to get that level of experience they need. So now they get their, their experience qualification, and then we can put them on Regina or some other ship that needs that to, to maintain the readiness. The third one that I haven't talked about is on the other coast. So we have high readiness covered off now. That's Vancouver. The crewing model we think we want to use to allow increased training is high readiness. That's what Vancouver is looking at. We're looking at a training model, which is mass numbers in a very safe environment off our coast, up and down the, the coast of North America. And that's Winnipeg, what you're doing. There's a normal readiness model that can ramp up quicker or ramp down quicker. Okay. It'll, it'll carry uh, torpedoes and missiles and stuff like that. It won't be expected to use them right away, but it takes a while to bring all these systems on, align them and everything else. And that's HMCS Charlottetown. And so they're ramping up for deployment in a year. They're at an X state of readiness. And so they're going to crew it sort of in between where Vancouver is and where Winnipeg is. Um, and so that'll sort of give us a, a large training capacity, a medium training capacity, and a much smaller training capacity when we're overseas. But it'll allow us to crew all of our ships with a training capacity. And so the East Coast is doing the same stuff uh, we are. They've, they've developed a model. They got the commanding officer to develop a model. They've reviewed it with our readiness organization. They reviewed it with sea training fleet staff. And they'll eventually take it to sea and get it tested. So we're doing our two at the same time. So is the East Coast model going to be based on the lessons learned from here on the West Coast? Or are they are they trying to chart their own course? No, Trevor McLean and I and our deputies and our organizations, we talk every week. Okay. Our engineers are talking daily right, um, about what they're seeing, what's going on, who's right. got what trainees. There's a, there's a bunch of East Coast engineers that are supporting Vancouver at sea right now. And they're going to deploy in Vancouver. And so we're really becoming, yeah, pick a coast, but you're going to sail where you need to sail to get the experience or to support the, the operation that's, that needs support. So um, they are using the same basis of what the Naval Force Readiness sort of looked at as a potential model to use. Uh, they've given it to their captain to take a look at, and then they'll, they'll crew it appropriately for their program. But I, I don't have insight into their program necessarily. So, Do you foresee that this new kind of reduced crewing model will translate over into other operational fleets? I guess what I'm wondering is that the crew complement of a, of a standard um, Halifax class is around 200 some yeah. odd people. So do you anticipate that we are going to a future where the actual assigned crew complement for a Halifax class will be reduced and still be fully combat effective? I don't think so. And the reason why I say that is because our fleet's actually growing. And I think as uh, a frigate, uh, gets to end life as a CSC comes on board or whatever else. We may go from a, a crewing model of, uh, it, it's about 190 sailors, and then there's about, you know, there's specialists on board, there's an air debt. So a ship generally deploys, you know, you, by the time you put high-end capability on a ship, we put a lot of sort of last-minute bolt-on specialty teams. Right. Because the average frigate doesn't need it before deployment. Sure. Um, I think our future model will have more specialty teams. Hmm. So right now we try and crew every frigate the same. We try and crew it 
uh, whether it's just doing local operations for the next two years or whether it's ready to deploy overseas, now it should have a 20-person boarding team. And we train it so that you know, our standard training means you can shoot down aircraft at the same time you're attacking other ships at the same time you're hunting a submarine. You can defend yourself and do damage control all during a boarding. Now I'm, now I'm pushing it a little bit, but we, we try and do it all in our frigates and we turn them into uh, battleships, not the right word, but an all-encompassing where frigates maybe weren't initially designed to be like that. But Canada deploys them far away from home, so they have to have a lot of independence in repairing themselves, maintaining themselves, uh, feeding themselves. If something breaks mechanically, they got to repair it. And you never know what you're going to find when you're on the other side of the world, so you better be trained in all areas. Right. So I think what you'll see is that the crewing of these ships will stay the same. As we recruit more and train more, we'll go back and, and we'll probably, the training ship will have less trainees and more and more trained crew. But the reality is, as recruiting picks up, and as we start to recover, we're crewing AOPS. As recruiting picks up and we start to recover, we're recruing to JSS. Right. And those are 220, 210, I think, crew each. Right. So that's another 500 sailors, right? And so I think out of necessity, because our fleet is growing. And the reality is, somewhere around 2025, 2026, we need a crew for CSE. Because the combat systems, the mechanical systems, are 100% different than these ships. Uh, and the Brits are sailing. They'll be sailing theirs by then. And so we can actually send people to the UK for a year to learn the new gas turbine and propulsion because the ships from that perspective are almost identical. Right. The core of the combat system is really structured around an American combat system. So we can send people there or to Australia, or to other countries that use these systems. Um, and so we're actually going to need that first ship's company probably around 25, 26 to wow. start their training. Right. Because by 27 or 28, the ship will look like a ship, and they're going to start activating parts of the combat system. It's going to take a year or two to activate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we recruit and as we recover our numbers, we're somewhere around 1,300, 1,400 short right now. Mm-hmm. If we grow by 200 a year, that's a lot of trainees on a ship. We're probably going to have to keep concept of a training ship. And when they're trained, they'll go to other frigates. And when they're when we get more, they're going to go to JSS. And when we get more, they'll go to the next JSS. And uh, it's going to be a, a build for the next 10, 12 years, I think. That's cool. So as we conclude, um, when we're talking about the future of this exercise, of Trident Fury, um, what what do you foresee for the future of this exercise? Things come together around late spring, early summer on the West Coast. Um, we have a deployment cycle. It's not always set in stone, but certain certain markers are. RIMPAC happens every other year around the same time, and we are one of the founding members and participants in RIMPAC, and so we go to RIMPAC. Uh, that sets people to go halfway across the Pacific to get to Hawaii or a third of the way across. Uh, with allies from North America and South America, we, we go over. And that kind of locks in the summer ops get. Right. You're already well on the way over to the Indo-Pacific. And there's task groups, Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, Japan, Korea. And then the Americans are going where the Americans go, sometimes one or the other. And so we can actually transit two-thirds of the way, generally with allies and friends. Partners, tankers, all good experiences. We're on our way over there, and then we can have a mission set. So you end up with a summer-fall deployment cycle. Ships then come home and need sort of a maintenance cycle, and then they need a train-up cycle, and then they're ready for the next summer-fall. Right. Uh, 
Um, whether we continually lock ourselves in, whether we rotate, especially as we get more ships, maybe you send a tanker and a frigate over to Rimpack and you keep the AOPS and something else here, um, there's always going to be an underlying cycle probably on this coast. And, and so I really see the spring program with weather, once the weather gets better, um, end of April into early June as being the ideal time to have an exercise. It's pre-rimpack, so we can sort of kick the tires, light the fires, and make sure the ships are ready to go. Yep. If it's non-rimpack here and there's a deployment, uh, then that is still the right time to ramp them up. Um, and so I, I really see a, a gathering of resources and need around this time of year for our Navy. Um, and my goal is if our Navy has a need to do that higher-end training, I want to do it sometimes at home. I don't want to always go overseas. I don't want to go to Santa San Diego every time. And so that's my overarching goal. I, I uh, typically would want Trident Fury every other year. Uh, and so RIMPAC would be the, the build to RIMPAC. And so it would be a more of a small, no scenario, not trying to do that kind of stuff, a small TDX. Mm-hmm. In a non-RIMPAC year, you'd want a larger Trident Fury and try and bring people here. Mm-hmm. Um, however, next year, Max Bernays is going to be here around this time. Uh, I would say in the uh, early May time frame would be available. Uh, you're going to have Asterix here, pre-deployment, back from the other deployment. It's probably available for an exercise. Probably going to have two frigates. You're going to have our submarine. So all of a sudden right there, I just kind of say, hey, uh, sometime in May, it looks like an exercise to me. And if, if you're saying you got a frigate or you got a couple frigates, haven't even talked about the MCVs yet, but if you have a couple of frigates with a tanker and a submarine, and then we'll see what we can do and how we work uh, Max Bernays in there. Um, I automatically think I better write a letter to my uh, U.S. partners, you know, and, and invite them along to see what they would want to achieve and what they could participate with. So, so you might see Trident Fury next year. Excellent, excellent. And if not next year, every other year. Yeah, you know, and um, the year afterwards, you just might see trials of our new JSS. Right, right. And all of a sudden, you say, "Well, we need to go to sea and trial our new tanker." Right. You know, parts of it. Sure. Who knows? Who knows? You know, this sure. this is the this will be it. We will have Max Bernays and we'll have a new tanker starting to go to sea for the first time. I don't know if it'll be ready to RAS or they might just want to test some radar systems and, and how ships come alongside and what the interaction is in a very safe environment. I don't know what we'll be doing. Um so I could see it happening again in twenty five. Lovely. Commodore Mazer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, Jody. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Hey folks. Here's a quick update to say that HMCS Ottawa and HMCS Vancouver achieved their high readiness certifications after Exercise Trident Fury, and the ships and their helicopter air detachments are now in the Asia-Pacific region as part of Operation Horizon. So we wish them fair winds and following seas during this deployment. We here at Gold Bold work really hard to present senior leaders like today's guest, So if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a thumbs up or a like or five stars. And please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of our great guests and topics. You can also see some great videos on our YouTube channel. So please search for Go Bold with Jody Atariwala and like and subscribe there as well. And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about us too. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode of Go Bold. And until then, we hope you all stay happy, healthy, and safe. Have a great day, everyone.
The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.